This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Idea City Podcast. For more information or to watch talks online, go to ideacity.ca or check out the Idea City channel on YouTube. Hello, and welcome to Idea City on the Air. By the end of the next half hour, you'll be inspired and enlightened by the world's biggest ideas, innovations, and breakthroughs as you hear about them in talks from the planet's smartest people. Moses Nimer's three-day annual Idea City conference in Toronto has been called Canada's premier meeting of the minds, and we're glad to have your mind with us. In this episode of Idea City on the Air, Alan Alda speaks about the importance of communicating science. Now, let's join Moses as he introduces Alan to the stage. We have a special guest here today, and his specialty in this particular circumstance is communication. In fact, you could say his entire career was based on communication. We know him as a famous actor, and I have a personal relationship with one of his productions because the day came in the early history of City TV when we were successful enough to be able to afford to put on aftermarket runs of a program called MASH. It worked beautifully, it helped our station at the time, and I had this brilliant insight which I'd like to play for you right now. City TV, me, and MASH. What do you think of everything? I think he's got a great body. <laughs> I've got the hearts for a Hawkeye. Oh, yeah? I like BJ. Here, here. I'd be kind of partial to Klinger myself. What do all these people want more than anything else? What do they really want? More mass. City TV, Channel 79, Cable 7. Okay. What I mean by that, and I'm going to make the claim anyways, I think I was the first programming genius to play two episodes of MASH back-to-back. Alan Alda. Hi. Hi, Alan. That was fun. Good to meet you. Thank you. Whoa. Thank you. Well, we're a little late, so good night, folks. That's so kind of you. Thank you. So you know I'm very interested in communication. And I want to tell you a story about the night that changed my life. And it really did. It really changed my life. It was the most effective communication I'd ever experienced. I was in Chile. It was 14 years ago, October 19th. 2003. It became my new birthday. You'll see why in a second. I was up on top of a mountain, 8,000 feet up on top of this mountain outside of a small town called La Serena. And I was sitting in this lobby of the observatory where I was going to interview some scientists in a few minutes. And I remember this so clearly. I was sitting on a blue vinyl bench. 
And I got this tickle in my gut. And, and within a few minutes, it was the worst pain I had ever felt in my life. And I'm all crumpled up on the, on the bench. And they had a medic up there. I, I see him looking at me across the lobby. And I don't think he had ever done anything medical before. <laughs> so he comes over to me and, and he says, are you all right? And I said, no, I got this pain. And I think I went down here. I think maybe I have appendicitis. And he said, yeah, I think so too. I didn't have a lot of confidence in this guy, you know, but they, they had an ambulance up there, one of these big old boxy things. It must have been 50 years old. And they slid me in the ambulance. I'm screaming in pain. They me an hour and a half down a bumpy mountain road to this little hospital where there's this brilliant surgeon who knew exactly what was wrong with me. It wasn't my appendix at all. It was about a yard of my intestine that had been all crimped up and lost its blood supply. And within a couple of hours, it was going to be dead, and so was I. But this was the communication. This was so wonderful. He leaned over so he could see my face, and I could see his face, and I could still see his, his eyes through his rimless glasses. And he said, here's what's happened. Some of your intestine has gone bad, and we have to cut out the bad part and sew the two good ends together. And I said, oh, you're going to do an end-to-end -end anastomosis. <laughs> he said, how do you know that? I said, oh, I did many of them on MASH. <laughs> but the thing about that was how clear it was. He didn't, he didn't dumb it down. That was exactly a correct way, an accurate way to describe the operation, what he said. I was the one who used the fancy language. That was my sickness. I'm on my deathbed. I'm trying to get a laugh out of the doctor. You know? <laughs> I was over the age of 50, and I had to have a front tooth taken out because I had broken it when I was 12 years old. So the dental surgeon had this pet operation he did where he said, I'm going to pull this piece of gum down over your socket, and it'll get a blood supply, and it'll be much better. I said, okay. So now he's getting ready to do the procedure, and he has this scalpel like inches from my face. And that's when he says, now, there'll be some tethering. I said, I said what, what do you tether, what? He said, tethering. I said, what do, you, what do you mean, tethering? He said, tethering, tethering. He starts to scream at me. He never, I still don't know what he meant by tethering. And even though I was old enough to say so, I didn't say, put the knife down and let's talk about this. I want to know what you, I was impressed with his surgical gown. They said, go ahead. So part of the operation, it turns out, included cutting that little bit of tissue up here. If you put your tongue up there between your gum and your upper lip, the frenum. I don't know what else it does, but one thing it does is hold your upper lip up. <laughs> And after the operation, I was making a movie, and there's a scene, the shot, where I had a smile, and I smiled, and the cameraman came over to me and said, why were you sneering just now? <laughs> so I wasn't sneering, I was, he said, no, go look in the mirror, and I didn't, I was, <laughs> so that he had given me a smilectomy, you know? And, and he didn't explain it, and when I said that maybe it's a good idea to explain these things, he, he sent me a letter trying to get out and you know, present his case so I wouldn't sue him. I had, no, I had no interest in suing him. I just wanted him to communicate better. But one good thing was it enabled me to play villains much better. <laughs> and the other thing was I really thought about 
communication, how important communication is. And that, the experience I had doing that science show that where I was up on the mountaintop interviewing the astronomers, that for seven, no, 11 years we did that, 11 years, and it was almost always good communication between me and the scientists I was interviewing because I stumbled into something I didn't expect because I didn't have much experience interviewing and I started to find that if we just had a real conversation where I simply wanted to know what their science was about, what, it, what was it, how did they do it, what did it mean, what did it mean to them, and I, I just came in with my own curiosity and my own natural ignorance. And I didn't pretend to an ignorance I didn't have. It was my own pure ignorance. <laughs> but it was coupled with curiosity. Ignorance, ignorance is a wonderful thing as long as it has curiosity attached to it. Ignorance without curiosity is not so good. <laughs> but we just had a conversation. And that went, made something real happen back and forth between us. It was relating. It was what I had experienced on the stage all my life. And it was something on the stage I had to learn. It doesn't come quickly. Even though we're social animals, sometimes we have to learn to relate to one another. And I had to do it as an actor. I read about it. Directors would tell me to relate more. And I didn't know what they meant. I knew it had something to do with the other person's face. So they'd say, relate to her more, and I'd go like this. No, no, you're not relating, relate more. I'd go like this. I didn't really get it. I didn't realize you can relate to somebody if their back is turned to you, if you're just by observing their body language or, or their tone of voice. Just the smallest clue can tell you who they are. And after I finished doing the science program, I realized wouldn't it be interesting if we could teach scientists to communicate with that ease, that freedom, that open channel between them and their audience, the way they had with me, only to be able to do it on their own without somebody like me drawing it out of them. So I experimented with a group of engineers, engineering students, and I taught them improvisation. I had them come into the room and talk one at a time about their engineering work for just a minute or two. And then we improvised for three hours. And then each one talked about their work again. And it was astonishing how much of a difference there was. Because this is not the kind of improvising most people are, are used to seeing. Most people are aware of improvising as comedy improvising. This, was, this is a more basic kind of improvising where you, you're, you're turned on to the other person. You've got to observe the other person. It's, if you don't observe them, they're, you're not, you, you can't do the scene with them. You can't, you can't connect with them. Coming up after the break. And when patients rate their doctors as having empathy, the patients are 19% more likely to take the doctor's advice. I think that's a big number. That sounds to me like there are some lives being saved in that 19%. Welcome back to Idea City on the Air. You're listening to Alan Alda speak about the importance of communicating science. So we were teaching scientists to, uh, to connect with one another, and after they learned to connect with one another and feel good and free about that, when they turned to an audience, 
They're talking to real people. It's not as though they're talking to people. They're really talking to them. They're looking them in the eye. They're making contact, just like Dr. Zabeda in Chile did with me. They're connecting. Instead of looking over their heads to quell their fear, you know, they're, they're getting pleasure out of the connection. And we've, we've trained now around the world, we've trained over 8,000 scientists in this method. So it, it really works, it transforms people. What I started to realize is as we train these people, they were telling us, you know, this applies to more than just scientists. And it, it, it really works with everybody, with couples, with parents and children, with people in business, employers, employees, salespeople, couples, for instance. Uh, just to give you an example of what I mean, you see, it's, it's, all, it's, it's based on empathy. It's taking the other person's perspective. It's really an empathetic stance. And empathy doesn't necessarily make you a good person or make you sympathetic or compassionate. But if you have that inclination, it really helps. It's a good tool. I mean, bullies have what I call dark empathy. They know how to get empathy. They know how to read your emotions and they know how to play your emotions so they make you feel terrible and they can read that and they get some pleasure from that. But empathy is just a, a neutral tool and if you have a good impulse, you can use it for that impulse. Like let's say, take a couple, uh, it's late at night after dinner, the husband's been working, the wife is already asleep in the other room. He passes by the kitchen sink and he sees a big pile of dishes in the kitchen sink and he thinks, Maybe I ought to do something about that. What are the chances he's going to do something about it? <laughs> I don't know, maybe. But if he has a little flash of empathy and he imagines what it must be like, what his wife might be feeling in the morning when she wakes up and looks at the sink, he might have the impulse to carry out on his good intention and he might do the dishes. He might, be, he, he might find out that doing the dishes is foreplay. <laughs> Doctors, it's very important for doctors. You know, when studies have been done on this and when patients rate their doctors as having empathy, the patients are 19% more likely to take the doctor's advice. I think that's a big number. That sounds to me like there are some lives being saved in that 19%. But the question is, does everybody have empathy? And if, if you, or do you have just what you're born with? Or can you, can you get more? Can you get enough to make this kind of thing happen? And there are people who teach empathy. We teach empathy, but different people teach it different ways. But it's, it's actually possible to develop empathy. One way is through these improv improvising exercises that I was telling you about. But I, was, I realized as I was writing the book that you, you can't, you can't keep going to an improv class. You need booster shots, and you're not gonna be able to get the booster shot at an improv class. And if you don't practice it, this is what's amazing to me, if you don't practice empathy, it goes away. You get a little weaker in that department. So I thought, wouldn't it be nice if I could find some mental, some emotional, solitary gymnasium workouts I could do on my own, on myself, by myself. One person suggests that you watch an emotional television show with the sound off so you read the people's emotions 
which is an odd but interesting thing to do. So I thought, reading emotions. I'll just try reading emotions as I walk through, the, through my life. And the funny thing was, I felt it began to have an effect on me. It changed me a little bit. It changed, I think it changed my face and my voice because I started to see other people change as they talked to me. I was at Columbus Circle and I was hailing a cab. So the cab pulls up and he rolls down the window and he says, where are you going? And I, usually I get furious when I hear this. It's against the law to, to not take somebody. It doesn't matter where you're going. You don't ask them before they get in because they don't like where you're going, they drive off. And I used to drive a cab in my 20s. I had to take them where they wanted to go. I dug my cab out of a snowbank at two in the morning one night. So I, I don't have much sympathy for them. I get angry when they say, where are you going, before they let you in. But this time, I'm full of empathy. <laughs> and I start to think, where's this coming from? And I think, it's 4.30 in the afternoon. He's gotta go return the cab to somebody else. He's been on duty all day long. He's probably tired. So I'll tell him where I'm going. He says, fine, get in. I get in the cab. I give him the exact address. He says, what's the cross street? Now I could get angry again. I'm furious at this. <laughs> the Aren't you supposed to know the cross street? That's what I want to say to him. He's the driver, right? Instead of that, I say, I'm looking it up for you on my iPhone. Now we're in an ecstasy of empathy. And he says to me, you know, you're a very nice person. People get in this cab, they don't care about other people. I've had to go to the bathroom for the last half hour. But I'm taking you exactly where you want to go. I said, no, don't do that. No, I don't want you to be in pain. Now, drop me a block away so you don't have to go around the block. I'll get out, I'll walk a block. He says, no, I'm taking you right where you want to go. You're too nice. Now he's giving up his kidneys for me. The amazing thing is, a little empathy makes people less annoying. Well, that's a great boon, I love it. The only thing is, it's not a formula. You can't hear about it and decide to do it. it. It goes away if you don't practice it, which I don't understand because we're social animals and yet we behave as if we're condemned to one another's company. But it, it, it's like a muscle that you gotta work out and keep strong. You don't just go to the gym once, you gotta keep going. The only thing is this is better because the gym is fun when you leave. <laughs> this is fun while you're doing it because it really is fun to connect with another person. I'll tell you one last story before I go. I was on vacation with my family. We were in the Virgin Islands and I was walking down a path. It was gorgeous. I was walking down the path with my grandson, Mateo. He was about six years old. And we were seeing things we had never seen before in the tropics, you know, trees and plants that were so unusual. On the side of the path, there was this one tree with spiky things all the way up the trunk of the tree, a little narrow trunk, looked like a dragon's back. And Mateo said, Grandpa, look at that tree. How did it get like that? And I thought, oh, this is great. He's asking me an evolution question. This is wonderful, we, I can explain evolution to him and he's asking me about it. So we sit on the ground and we talk for 45 minutes about evolution, about adaptation, natural selection, the whole thing it was glorious. And the next day he's swimming with his cousin and he asks her a question. And she says, that sounds like a science question. Why don't you ask grandpa? He says, I'm not making that mistake again. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
thank you everybody tonight. Thanks for listening to Idea City on the Air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year. And find hundreds of talks online every day at ideacity.ca. For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or youtube.com slash ideacity. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.